Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And a quick Patreon shout out before we get into the episode, and that goes out to Jessica. Thank you so much for supporting the show over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. We hope you enjoy the monthly newsletter and all the other bonuses. And this week, we've got a very special guest with us that we've been excited about having on the show for a long time. Ella Al-Shamahi is a National Geographic explorer, paleoanthropologist, evolutionary biologist, and stand-up comic. She specializes in Neanderthals, caves, and expeditions in hostile, disputed, and unstable territories. She's also just had a book published called The Handshake, A Gripping History. So we'll talk a bit about the book, about Ella's amazing career, and also maybe we'll learn how to tell better jokes. All right, let's not ask her to do too much. It seems <laughs> a bit unlikely. But thank you, Ella, so, so, so much for yes, being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's just jump right in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and um, chiefly, what brought you to anthropology? Uh, okay. So that's a messy story. <laughs> um, I, I definitely kind of uh, didn't head out at 16 intending to become, um, you know, a, a paleoanthropologist and, and certainly didn't intend to go into kind of hostile territories or become a stand-up comic or anything like that. Um, I think I was really obsessed with evolution. I come from a creationist background and I was just obsessed with it. And I actually kind of, um, the joke is, you know, I kind of actually awkwardly went to university at 18 uh, thinking that I might destroy the theory of evolution. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <I didn't do that. laughs> there was a lot of failure involved in that one. Um, and then I switched sides um, and, uh, and just became, you know, just really, uh, I can't express it enough, just absolutely fascinated with, with evolution. Um, and, and what makes us who we are and how we became who we are. Um, and, and kind of by accident, again, got into working in, in hostile and disputed territories, partly really because I guess my parents come from um, Yemen. Um, and, um, and then the comedy was something that I did because I needed to. Because, you know, <laughs> um, it, it, stuff gets a bit intense. <laughs> um, and I realized that I kind of have control or, or a certain amount of control, should we say, over how I reacted to things. Um, and I could try, try and find humor in things. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it would stand me in good stead. So it's kind of, it's a very strange trajectory. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, it's, we really like hearing about the strange trajectories because it, it reinforces that there's no single path to anthropology. Yeah. But also if you met a 16 year old who was like, you know, I, I would not like them. <laughs> <laughs> so I will destroy to- evolution. <laughs> uh, that, I mean, that was me. But- <laughs> 
Hey, look, my lesson in it is, you know, sometimes, sometimes talking to people works. Sometimes, you know, asking people to study something more and, um, you know, uh, being uh, um, kind of open with people. And, you know, sometimes it works. Uh, You know, I'm exhibit A of that. No, that's and that is a a point that uh, I think cannot be overstated of just, you know, writing people off and being like, well, you just I'm not going to change your mind clearly don't know what's happening and so I will leave you to your ignorance over there but like letting like actually giving people the opportunity to read and learn and discuss and um may may have an impact no and it's something you see kind of like you know science politics with so many other things like we'll become more and more tribal I think and you know we we like our our own kind whatever that means Um, and I get it, you know, I really do in so many ways. Um, but at the same time, I just think, well, what if nobody kind of challenged me? And, and what if everybody was awful to me? And what if, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, I would yeah. not uh, be open to the underlying assumption of the whole of biology. <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> I, you know, that's just, for me, it's, it's, yeah. I think there has to be space for us to befriend people that have different opinions and, and, yeah. you know, um, and kind of al- allow them some grace. And yes, if somebody's exhausting you, by all means, decide not to, you know, converse on those particular topics. And there are some people who just are au contraire to be au contraire. But, um, you know, I mean, let's be blunt. I went to university to destroy evolution in my head. I, so that didn't mean I was a, a petal you know like I wasn't like a like a little flower being like I don't really I'm going to just sit here quiet no I was challenging all right. these evolutionary biologists I was loud and I was challenging and eventually you know I, I realized that um I I it was such a solid theory and, and all the arguments that I was being presented with were there was a robustness to them you know yeah well in along the lines of befriending and allowing people space to to learn and to to read and consider things like evolution. You've presented on television, you've given TED Talks, you've been featured many times in print, and generally you're a very public-facing figure. So for those of us who are also kind of in the business of getting people excited about the human past, what are some of your favorite strategies for presenting that to the average person? And how do you help people connect to and care about populations that lived hundreds and thousands of years ago? Yeah. So I, I think the the thing that we always have to remember is that um, we are narcissists as a people. <laughs> um, and that is, that's really useful guys, because I, I think it basically means that we, um, it, it's an easy crowd. You know, <laughs> yeah. crab. it's very rare that I've, I've said something. I mean, I remember once saying something about Neanderthals to someone and they just look at me going, and how useful is this knowledge? <laughs> it was like, it was once that that happened to me. Usually people are just like, oh, where did we come from and why? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think it's a receptive audience. That's something to remember. I think the other thing to remember, and this is where I think I might differ from some of my colleagues, is to just be really honest about... Um, who we're targeting. If we're actually targeting the masses, so to speak, um, the unconverted, et cetera, et cetera, then you need to 
dumb down your language. You do. <laughs> um, and you need to be open to kind of being a bit broader um, and, um, and, and, you know, trying to find narratives that excite people and that kind of thing. The kind of things that um, in academia we're, we're much more cautious about, we're, we're very nervous about. I think we need to shift the line a little bit. I'm not saying we need to get rid of the line, but I, need to, I think we need, do need to shift the line as academics or specialists um, and, and, you know, realize that there's, there's no point in using all this jargon that nobody really understands or gets mistranslated um, once it goes once it goes to the masses. Um, and then I always think, you know, there's all these other kind of ways of getting people in. You, you show people a really good story. You show people your, you know, um, how it relates to them. Um, and also, um, I don't know. There's there's also things like trying to be nuanced in a way where so you do challenge people on their assumptions. But um, you try and find easy ways to do it, you know. So um, technically, all of my shows, pretty much with a few exceptions, were, were about kind of overturning uh, something, you know. So it was like mm-hmm. um, one was trying to get people to move paradigms when it came to Neanderthals. So the idea that Neanderthals aren't these knuckle-dragging ape men, you know, <laughs> that are actually incredibly, you know, sentient, were these incredibly sentient beings, blah, blah, blah. Um, or with uh, Viking women, you know, the idea that some Viking women were actually elite warriors and, you know, trying to move people along. And um, and it's, it, it's you know, these are these are things which in some, you know, like loads of people, kind of the general public don't know that. And, and some, God, I mean, we found that with the Viking show, some people were not happy either. Some people were quite angry about it. Um, and, and it's like, okay, so how... How do we get people to move along? And it's like, you know what? We, we've got to drop, first of all, a whole pile of nomenclature, which nobody, or jargon, which nobody understands, but, you know, in academic um, circles. Um, we've, got to show, we've got to show it as something that is watchable, you know, is exciting mm-hmm. to watch. Because I feel like, you know, again, if, if we're trying to convert the people that aren't converted, that's the way you get them. And it's, it's by things like interesting visuals and interesting storytelling. Um, one of the coolest things that we did in the Neanderthal show, which is still one of the highlights of my career, even though it's the very first series I ever did. It's, it's, um, show's called Neanderthal. It was, it went out on BBC and PBS. Um, and we got Andy Serkis to help us out. Andy Serkis, of course, is the genius behind Gollum, yeah. um, and, and a whole pile of other, uh, Hollywood characters. But, um, there's this really old joke in paleoanthropology and it says that the joke goes that this one paleoanthropologist and he says, um, uh, you know, Neanderthals were just uh, were just like us. You know, if you put one in a bowler hat, you gave him a shaved his beard, you know, you smartened him up a bit and you put him on the New York subway, nobody would notice. And then another paleoanthropologist said, yeah, but that says, that says more about the New York subway than it does um, yeah. about Neanderthals. And we just thought, hold on a second, we've got we've got this money, you know, we've got BBC money, we've got PBS money, we've got Wellcome Trust money, we've got Andy Circus. Let's get a Neanderthal, put him on the on the London Underground and ask people if they would switch carriages. And just that visual, you know, that's what people were talking about with the show, that we that we put a Neanderthal on the London Underground. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> um, I love that. <laughs> I'm just I'm just savoring that visual, just having a moment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not saying it like some of this stuff costs money. Do you know what I mean? So right, then, right, yeah, and, uh, certainly past our budget. I know it's, it's past mine as well, but you know, I, I'm going to have to meet up with the right people. Um, and so with with the Viking show, for example, we got um, we did some CGI, and um, we acc- I mean, this was ridiculous. We accidentally stumbled upon 
um, I accidentally stumbled upon uh, the what we have argued might be the first evidence of a battle injury on a female Viking warrior. The weirdest thing with this skull is the skull is actually um, in an exhibit in a museum. So it's not even hidden away and nobody had noticed that it had this massive injury huh. uh, to to the forehead oh shocking and um smells a little bit like you know like 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 the patriarchy but anyway <laughs> and um and so we thought okay let's bring her to life let's get cgi let's just show what she looked like when the wound was fresh and let's show how it healed um and it's stuff like that that oh wow you know uh, well yeah. when i think that speaks to what you were saying about our like our inherent narcissism of just like, well, if we look at that, like if we look at Andy Serkis, if we look at this, this recreated woman, like that's somebody you could encounter, that's somebody you could meet. Yeah. Um, and therefore it, it is relevant to you. Yeah, um, exactly. Like exactly. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't challenge. So for example, one of the things about Amazonian history is that it is constantly told um, by, you know, white explorers basically <laughs> from like, you know, a few centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really big headache and um i did a an amazon series um and uh, it was it was basically um looking at how indigenous people in the amazon were were not just the custodians of the amazon they were literally the gardeners of the amazon Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the amazon would not exist today in the way it does if it wasn't for these indigenous people um and one of the one of the struggles we had was um, and I, I think we actually failed at it, if, like being really, really blunt, was to, to we centered a lot of the narrative around um, the diary of this one um, missionary priest explorer type fellow called Gaspar de Carvajal. Um, yeah, yeah he instance. was with uh, Pizarro. Yeah, was just, you know, I mean, they were like a murderous bunch of so-and-so's. Oh, yeah. Um, and you know, it was, it was really a real headache because, um, it, it did not sit well with me that it centered around that and it didn't sit and it didn't center around, um, indigenous people's own narratives. And, you know, I, I, I managed like, to push the needle a little bit. Um, and we, you know, we got some lines changed and, um, you know, the team were great and they managed to get, um, uh, an indigenous elder and, and, uh, chief to kind of talk about their own history and what have you. Um, but even in that, you can see how, we could have done much better. And that's partly because, you know, we're so used to doing things one way that um, it's also like challenging um, the whole of production as well, the whole of television production to move a little bit. Um, but even in that, you know, that that show would have been made much worse 10 years ago. And I'm, I would like to think it would be made much better in 10 years time. Um, so I'm not saying we shouldn't challenge, you know, um, the way we we do stuff, but it's it's also... It's a complicated beast. <laughs> yeah. It is. And so moving on to your book, um, which uh, is newly published and is brilliant, entitled The Handshake, A Gripping History. Um, so of all the things that you could write a book about, uh, what inspired you to write about shaking hands? Well, okay, the first thing I need to explain is that I'm not clairvoyant because currently I have a whole pile of friends and colleagues and just random people thinking that I just happen to have been working on a book about the handshake before a global pandemic, which led to the death of the It does, it does. (laughs) It is curious <laughs> that made me laugh so much that, like, that you're part of like a PR campaign for shaking hands the concept <laughs> to rehabilitate the image 
definitely tickled a lot of people. And I'm like, no, no, you've got to understand this book came about because of the pandemic. I wasn't already writing this before. <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, don't suddenly stop following me on lottery ticket numbers. Um, but um, okay, so here's what happened. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a whole pile of articles that had been written. And I am absolutely convinced that um, these journalists who basically clearly just don't like human touch um, had been lobbying their editors <laughs> for a while about how they wanted to write something about how the handshake was gross and their editors were like it's not your time shut up and then suddenly they were like okay fine you can have it <laughs> so basically there was this slew it was this slew of articles of people first of all who hated the handshake and apparently all human touch um and who also just kept repeating what i say is oft repeated garbage about the origin stories of the handshake um oh, at the same time yep. i was effectively unemployed because a global pandemic happened and and I am, my title is, you know, uh, well, one of my titles is Explorer. Um, and <laughs> literally wasn't even allowed to explore London at this point. So, nope. so I was like in my house and that was it. <laughs> um, and so all my TV projects had been, you know, had been literally shelved. And, um, and it was a case of actually my agents turning around going, hello, maybe you book on the handshake. And they were just kind of like, you know, and I was like, holy because they had no idea how obsessed I had been with this topic. <laughs> I just never thought to turn it into a book because, you know, I, I'm sane. I don't know. Because <laughs> like, writers are blessed. They have, they have energy, let me tell you. Um, and uh, yeah, and so that's how it kind of came about. That's a great reason. <laughs> that's, um, I was twiddling yeah, my thumbs okay. in North London, yeah. very angry at all of these articles that were garbage, I, basically. <laughs> I mean, it's great that you did something about it. And, and, um, so the, the myth that you mentioned about the origins of the handshake, I think it's the one that, that I first learned. And as a small precocious child who loved telling people things very confidently, I think I, I'm responsible for spreading around that it was, uh, sort it's fine. of I'll take you outside later and, and, and uh, <laughs> I'd have a go at you. It's fine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, my lunch money. Um, <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I was going to get really violent. I was like, why? Why be nice? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was um, the idea that in maybe the Middle Ages, maybe ancient Rome before that, uh, men meeting manfully would clasp hands or forearms to establish that their right arm, their sword arm was unoccupied and the shaking was to dislodge any hidden blades. Um, yeah, that, sorry for uh, spreading that around. Uh, no, thank you. Thank you. It's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm really trying, me and my publisher. <laughs> I know. <laughs> trying really hard uh, but no this is it and I think it's not so well with some people they're like yeah I guess your right hand is your sword hand and they were like yeah I guess the shake up and down does dislodge and, 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 and that's as far it. back as the past goes <laughs> I know right and this was brilliant because first of all I work in hostile territories and I'm like I'm sorry guys this makes no sense like this literally <laughs> just provides somebody with opportunity you what could just hell? you could punch someone with the other hand I'd be like, I hate to tell you, but uh, people have left hands. I know. Also, often, Thank you. not always. <laughs> so, so how right. old is the handshake and where does it come sure. from? And uh, so I will just say one other thing, of yes, course. Yes, which, yes, yes. Uh, the, there's an, an American president who famously was assassinated, President McKinley, by a not so nice gentleman who um, was carrying a weapon and concealed, you know, um, and uh, approached him pretending 
to go in for a handshake. So, it, so this whole thing doesn't fly, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, in the book, I argue that actually the handshake is not just ancient, that it is uh, in our DNA. Um, and so what I do is I track it back. So um, I, I'll kind of give you the uh, the Cliff Notes version of this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my book's not that long, so, so the Cliff Notes version is hilarious. But anyway, um, so uh, essentially um, what you need to think about is, first of all, the archaeological record is full of handshakes. In fact, we have a handshake from 8 BC um, in Mesopotamia, uh, where, you know, you have a handshake with a Babylonian king. And let me tell you, that handshake is on the throne. Um, and it looks eerily like the kind of photo ops that happen in those gardens. You know what I mean? Like two world leaders shaking hands. It's it's much more about the kind of what's going like, you know, the political PR optics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm sorry, this is on your throne. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's also, you see it in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Um, and you see a very similar thing with the handshake there where it has multiple meanings. They're always positive. The meanings are very, very familiar to us, except for one, which is kind of interesting, which is um, the handshake symbolizing marriage, where obviously right now there's no like, and now you may kiss the bride. Um, like, it's not like, you know, you may shake hands you know, it's, it's you know that, that's the one that I think we wouldn't recognize although I've had some people tell me that um in Celtic tradition sometimes the handshake is kind of used to symbolize marriage mm-hmm. and I was I was quite intrigued by that um but then um I was like okay this is fascinating but I'm also a paleoanthropologist and I'm interested in much deeper time on most good days um and so I was interested to ask whether uncontacted tribes shook hands and this is for a very simple reason i need to kind of caveat this by saying it's not because uncontacted tribes are somehow primitive or what have you because uncontacted tribes made it to 2021 just like the rest of us so they're definitely more than human um it's it's uh, the interest in uncontacted tribes is this it's that uncontacted tribes have opted out of contact with the outside world so their behaviors and traditions are not because, I don't know, they, they Googled it or they saw a TV show or a missionary turned up or an oil prospector. It might speak to the human condition. And that's why it's kind of interesting. Um, and uncontacted tribes obviously are very, very hard. To, it's very hard to establish um, kind of behaviors of uncontacted tribes upon first contact because it must be terrifying for them and whoever else is involved. Like it's not, you know, it's not the, um, the easiest thing to do. However, I did see a number of references to uncontacted tribes knowing what the handshake was before uh, before they made contact. In fact, there's um, an anthropologist details this with two tribes in New Guinea. So he turned up in New Guinea about seven months after they, they'd made contact and he inquired about this and they said that they had always shaken hands and he got confirmation of this from a number of people, which was fascinating. So it suggests, okay, so the, the, the handshake is old. So then as a paleoanthropologist, I'm like, okay, so how old? And the question is, of course, do chimps shake hands? And guess what? Chimps and bonobos shake hands. And actually Kat Hobater, who uh, is a primatologist out of St. Andrews University, um, did this brilliant research showing that the chimps um, have handshakes that have multiple meanings, again, just like us, just like the ancient Greeks, um, and um, and it, but it's always positive. And she's got this really wicked footage, actually, of these two chimps going at each other in a fight, and then kind of sheepishly walking up to each other to shake hands, Aww. meaning okay, fine, bygones be bygones. It's just so cute. Sorry. I know, right, right, but but with two chips. Um, and, uh, so then, the conclusion I have to draw is that the handshake isn't just cultural; it's biological. Because of course, the chimps are our closest living relatives. So mm-hmm. in the book, I actually argue that the chimp, that the the chimps, that the, uh, the handshake is at least seven million years old because 
Um, that's when our common ancestor existed. Um, what I love is, of course, uh, in some places it's just written that the handshake, I argue, is seven million years old. And I can just see a whole bunch of readers going, what? where does she come up with seven million? <laughs> <laughs> where did that come from? But I do explain that. Um, and then, of course, some people, sorry, I can't stop speaking about this because it makes me very excited. Um, but, um, what, I've become the handshake lady. Anyway, um, but um, there's this one um, thing that people keep asking and they're like, well, why? Though? Okay, so symbolism, but what? Um, and that's where it gets freaky because um, it turns out um, the handshake isn't just about symbolism. Um, many of us would argue that the handshake is about chemo signals or chemical signals. Mm-hmm. And I think most people don't realize how important chemical signals are for human communication. So if you ask most people, they think, you know, human communication is like, you know, language and sonnets and blah, blah, blah. And actually it turns out that we're also just smelling each other. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really important. So there's all these crazy experiments where they put gauze under people's armpits and they got them to watch happy films or you know scary films and then they transferred that gauze to a different bunch of participants and they were accurately reflecting those emotions on their faces in fact there's this one experiment where they got people to watch happy films they got the gauze they put it into bottles they gave it to a different group of participants and they asked them point to the bottles which smell most like happiness and they were getting them right more than you would expect by chance (laughs) and you know this is it's madness but of course it's only madness if you think that we're not animals because as soon as you remember that we're animals, you're like, yeah, what? we haven't evolved our way out of being animals. Of course we communicate with each other via chemical signals. But it does it does sound kind of freaky. And, and then there's more experiments they did um, with the Wiseman Institute where they showed that the handshake itself transfers chemo signals. It's a really good vector for transferring chemo signals. And using hidden cameras, of course, they showed that you were more likely after a handshake instead of like a wave to touch your face and take a sniff. But unconsciously unconsciously yeah so that like you know prim and proper handshake that's so gentlemanly it turns out is actually just a really good way of getting a whiff of each other <laughs> it's just brilliant slightly more uh. gentlemanly than than sniffing bottoms i mean i don't think that's appropriate in most companies well, yeah, mostly <laughs> yeah. it is it is in several um employee handbooks <laughs> so just to not do yes yes to, to not do <laughs> This is the thing you'd see in a lot of HR things, you know, maybe don't smell each other, but it's like, actually, we're already doing that. Yeah. (laughs) And since reading that in your book, it's frustrating now that folks really aren't shaking hands very much because I am now hyper aware of the idea that if I shake hands, do I then touch my face? Do I do it? Of course. I mean, of course I do. I must. But I don't know because I've not shaken anyone's hand in a year and a half. I mean, does does it gross you out, though, the idea of, of doing that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's you're right. But have, you, have you ever come across people and just been like, oh, I don't like your smell is, is yep. odd to me? Yeah. See, this is, I think, I think we're aware, I think we're particularly aware of it with romantic partners. I just don't think most of us have made the leap to other people um, in a non romantic setting. Um, and I think that's where it really, really freaks people out because people are like, what? You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And also, I know, like, if I'm really stressed out, my like if I sweat, it smells different. Like no. stress, stress, sweat is gross. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's are you kidding? No, that's so interesting. I'm agreeing, but I'm not saying that Anna smells differently bad when she's stressed oh. and sweating. Yeah, no, I just I smell bad across <laughs> the board, and it's just a gradient of bad. No, it just um I I also will admit to having a very a very delicate nosy. I have a a really 
um, strong sense of smell, uh, which has mostly been to my detriment, but, um, yeah, I have, see, the interesting, this is why I think this really fascinated me because I, I have a really strong sense of smell, um, to the point where I don't like my own scent, you know, that's saying something. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I also, you know, I mean, there was a period where about 50% of, uh, the guys I rejected, um, romantically was because of their scent. And of course they never knew this and I'm sure just very confused. Well, if you'd <laughs> like, like to name them now. That's right. <laughs> Peter and Andrew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anyway, um, but sorry, that was my biblical school. Anyway, um, but, um, but no, I think it's really it's it's a fascinating one. But but then you do hear of stories. I mean, yours is particularly interesting. But I you know I remember speaking to one, um, uh, you know, in my dorms, and this this one girl, and she was like, "Well, um, yeah, my sense of smell is so strong that I can I can smell when someone's on their on their period when they're menstruating." And let me tell you, I took a step back. <laughs> um, so some people do have this heightened sense of smell, but I just don't think most of us are aware of how prominent smell is in our communication interactions. I think that's where we're like, no, this is really weird. Yeah. It's, it's not something yeah. you, you think about. Well, I do now. So thanks for that. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, perhaps speaking of um, uh, moving the needles, perhaps we can shift the, the needle from like vibes to smell uh, I think do we want to do that <laughs> no I think that like you know getting a, a vibe from someone I think that um, there is a fair amount of that that is part of those sort of part of it is probably um, chemical signals yeah unconsciously being aware of that see I hadn't considered that at all that when we talk about vibes we might be we might be vibing on smell but you know there's so there's this one the theory of emotional contagion which is along the lines of um you know in a crowd like hysteria yeah they become very angry or suddenly they become very happy so there's this argument that actually that's real and it's based on chemical signals on chemo Mm. signals um kind of similar to the way you see herds of animals they might be kind of a quick change and they're kind of chemically signaling to each mm-hmm. other it's a controversial theory but also i kind of feel like i've been in or seen crowds where suddenly the crowd gets very angry or suddenly the crowd gets very happy and i've been very confused as to what set it off yeah <laughs> and you know, there's a part of me that's really open to this theory i'm like maybe <laughs> I mean, and plants certainly chemo signal to each other and so there's no reason to think that that might not be something built into a very yeah. sort of deep shared ancestral thing. I realize that that's not entirely how evolution works. Plants have evolved for quite some time on their own, but it's it's interesting to think about. Well, I hope you don't get too in your head about thinking about uh, that when you are um, uh, performing stand-up. And be like, oh no. <laughs> Good evening, you I all see. smell great. Uh, can you imagine, especially in most comedy clubs, I think uh, the smell is probably... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> not to anyone's taste, really. Mm. <laughs> um, but I would like to ask uh, very selfishly about <laughs> um, another aspect of your career. Um, so just you know, a little bit about me. When I was a child, I wanted to be an explorer because I was from a place I, I didn't have many opportunities to go many places, uh, meet a lot of people from other places. And it just seemed amazing. And this was squashed because I was told that we found everything. And now, all these decades later, <laughs> I know differently, but I meet a real life explorer. And so I would like to know, um, what is it like having the job title Explorer? Capital and e. do you like put that on your income tax forms? Like, what is it actually like? 
What does that like? look like? What is that aspect of your career like? Just sort of um, experientially. Yeah, I mean, forgive my language, but it is the wankiest title ever. And I definitely <laughs> wouldn't have given it to myself, if that makes sense. Um, also, it's kind of funny because um, Google Earth has effectively really made me unemployed in so many ways. Um, so, so it really doesn't make sense as a title. Um, but, you know, I, I think when National Geographic bestows you with it, you just accept it and you take it. Sure. <laughs> um, right. But, you know, I think obviously um, there's a world in which... Um, there's a world in which, you know, things were unexplored, but really what we mean by that is that um, we were going to visit other people who had, you know, were perfectly, you know, fine and happy and all the rest of it. Um, yeah. I would say, though, that there's, uh, it, it's a kind of cool title because it conjures up something that is kind of exciting and it, it speaks to the child in a lot of us. And I also, uh, I kind of love the fact that I'm a woman and and have a bit of colour in me and I'm using this title because it kind of is quite, sub- and, and live in the 21st century because of course your image of, of that explorer is, you know, the guy um, in an ice sheet somewhere with a white beard um, from the 1700s or something. Yeah, um, yeah. or in a pith helmet. That as well. <laughs> I'd say though that there's so much left to be explored um you know the, there's cave systems which i mean let me tell you most caves on this planet have not been even discovered let alone explored um you know the deep sea is still you know largely a mystery in so many ways um but also um exploration is also just kind of about going going to places um and um trying to understand them better and while the title itself is quite loaded um and almost a joke it's kind of a bit tongue-in-cheek in in so many ways um i think the i think just the interest and kind of and that hunger and desire to go places is just i mean i don't know i think we're all still kids aren't we like we still that curiosity still exists one of the most kind of popular means i certainly know of is um is uh you know some hobbits screaming about how they're going on an adventure <laughs> i think it's like an adventure with knowledge at least if it's a you know if i always argue that the the difference between you know an adventurer and an explorer is um the latter you hope comes with some knowledge whereas the former it's kind of just you know let's go see yeah exactly <laughs> i want to get to the top and it's just about me 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 although actually i say that and, and obviously you know massive egos on both in both camps so thank you i'm gonna go uh just play this back for my dad. <laughs> Be like, Do you hear that? See, <laughs> I could have. Now I'm going also, to. Also, literally Google Earth, Google Earth guys made us all unemployed. So just, you uh. know, if you want to join an industry which, you know, has more whatever going for it, then definitely go for that. But obviously stuff like that never goes on tax returns. Right? I mean, it's just, it's just, just the most bizarre title. It just, I don't know what to do with it sometimes, but it does give me some joy. So. Well, good. I mean, what do else you have a you? business card that says Explorer? Oh my God. No, I don't. But if it did. Uh, oh. um, I, okay. my, my brother previously had a position in which his business card said scientist <laughs> as his title. And <laughs> there's no, there's no, there's no getting past that. No. So hold on. Just of the whole science. All of it. He just yeah. speaks for all of it. Cool. Yeah, cool. he, yeah. Yep. He, he is does science. Uh, science manifest. So. <laughs> he is science man. <laughs> uh, well, while I design our new t-shirt that says 
scientist or explorer. <laughs> uh, we're going to have a quick ad break. And when we come back, we'll have more questions. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. You deliberately do and talk about science in places that aren't typically open to scientific inquiry as a response to what you've called science's geography problem. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, um, about that, about both your work and the geography um, problem, the geography problem itself? Yeah. Uh, I, I love the phrase, the geography problem, because it conjures up so many different things in people's heads. Um, so, so what I basically argue and, and actually quite a few people argue is only certain places in the world get um, kind of Western scientific funding um, and that there are a whole uh, pile of places where it's very, very difficult to get um, Western grants um, to do scientific research. <clears throat> so, for example, if you're a politically unstable place, there are a lot of um, academic bodies um, where you will really, really struggle to do research. In fact, some institutions simply ban you from going there. And the argument is, oh, these places are too unsafe uh, for you to do research. And my argument to that is, hold on a second, I have friends that work on dangerous snakes. <laughs> and in fact, the uh, most dangerous situations I've ever been in have almost always consistently involved snakes. Um, hmm. I have friends that go into very, very deep caves, much deeper than the caves that I normally go into. Um, I sadly don't have any friends that are astronauts, but if I did, <laughs> um, they would tell me how they practically attach themselves to rockets and blow themselves up. Um, not blow themselves up, but you know, as in blow themselves into outer space. Um, and all of those things uh, are approached with much more nuance, right? So it's, it's okay, this is really unsafe. So you have to jump through quite a few more hurdles, but then they're not automatic bans. Whereas so-called red zones are automatic bans, um, mm -hmm. according to a lot of uh, Western funding bodies. And that's a real problem. And um, the, the result of that is that um, there's a whole pile of places which are massively understudied and under-researched. And to be quite honest with you, um, the, the biggest discoveries in the next hundred years will probably be made in those places, just because they're the places where people aren't kind of treading on them. So I often argue that somewhere like, like Wales, for example, has, you know, how many entomologists, for example, how many historians, how many this, how many that, right? Uh, now a place like Iraq or a place like Somalia, how many do they have? 
And yet in Wales, people are still making scientific discoveries. So imagine what the potential is for places which are so understudied. Um, so I, I argue that it's a tragedy for science, but I also argue that it's a tragedy for these places because often in these places there are academics um, and, and people who are um, really wanting to collaborate, really wanting to, to work in, in, um, in their fields or, you know, um, young people who would be really interested in going into these fields but think there are no prospects for them, even though their doorstep might actually be the front line of scientific exploration. Very well stated. Yeah, that's something that... Um... I'm, I'm glad that you think that because it's. I think it's... <laughs> I think, you know, I'm not, I'm genuinely not asking people to go off and, and work in war zones. First of all, I, I personally never, you know, will not go into a place that's being actively bombed, you know, because why? Yeah. Um, but just because one part of a country is at war doesn't mean the whole country is. Um, and also there's, there's ways of working in places that are politically unstable. Um, and I just think that um, funding bodies should be more nuanced in the way that they are with, you know, deep sea exploration or with, you exactly. know, with poisonous snakes. You know, it's, there should be more questions as opposed to blanket bans and, and even possibly training, you know, like. Um, I, it's so funny because I, I work with, obviously I work in television and, um, at some point they turned around and were like, uh, Ellie, you've got hostile environment training, right? And I was like, no. <laughs> and they were like, hold on, but you work in hostile environments. So I'm like, yeah, but I'm an, I'm like, come from an academic background. Do you think anyone's paying for hostile environment training? <laughs> so it's kind of the funniest thing is that I, I end up in these like, you know, hostile environment training things with, with effectively journalists and media people. Um, and nobody thinks to do that for you know academics i mean it's just that just it's really useful kind of training um and uh you know it's it's there's there's things that we could do that would help you know yeah 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 i i i mean i went to a heat stroke training once <laughs> at like a heat exhaustion prevention course and yeah. like that was seen as like revolutionary is that why you're <laughs> always yelling at me to hydrate no all i had to do in order to go to that was almost die oh <laughs> so that's of of heat stroke. Um, but I think that I think that what you're saying also is a very uh, is a point very well taken of the academics, like the individuals who are um, at institutions and based in institutions, training at institutions in those regions and in those areas of countries, like collaborating with them also is a way to uh, combat this yeah. geography problem because there are, are yeah. plenty of brilliant people um, in um, in departments that uh, would be great collaborators and co-PIs and and it's an issue of is this someone that um, you know perhaps the for example a federal funding body is is willing to consider yeah. as an appropriate collaborator yeah and and there's a lot of fields which sure don't exist in some places you know so um yemen the term paleoanthropology is is pretty out there it kind of just kind of falls under prehistory and there are maybe two academics who sometimes delve into it and that's it in the whole country um and so sure you know uh, you either collaborate with them or here's an idea you find a master's student <laughs> you know wouldn't that be yeah. amazing Mm. Um, and, and then you can have three and and here's the thing so many people have clocked onto this and and what i'm saying is not in any way rev revolutionary this is practiced by so many good teams like so many good teams will do this they will kind of bring on master students and kind of you know try to develop them and and um and and that's 
really, it's actually a really sustainable way of doing things because then, for example, if you do that and then the country goes back into a full-scale war again, guess what? That's their home. <laughs> That's their backyard. You know, the research doesn't stop because yeah. um, we can't be there. Um, and, and I think, you know, as I said, there are teams that do this, but it, but it should be just the way it's done as opposed to this kind of crazy idea. Exactly. All right. Well, now that we've solved that problem... We can take one more very quick ad break and then wrap up with our two hardest questions. Nice. Oh, no. Sorry. It's three hardest questions. Well, I can count. Right. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back. We have a few more questions. Do you have advice, just in general, help us. Now, do you have advice for someone who isn't sure how to get into the field of anthropology or who doesn't feel that there's a place for them in the field? And Amber and I are asking this question as people who have both sort of backed into where we are now through a series of misadventures. (laughs) I mean, it's... It's, it's a difficult one because, um, you, you know, there's obviously the traditional route. You kind of, you, you know, you, you get a degree that's in that field and then you find a way of wedging yourself in. Mm-hmm. Um, my undergrad's actually genetics and my master's is, is taxonomy and biodiversity. So anthropology, I kind of stumbled upon somewhere in my PhD. <laughs> I was like, ah, this is a bit. You know, I think if people are made to feel unwelcome, I think that's a very different discussion. And it's um, it's it's hard because often the people that are made to feel the most unwelcome in a discipline are the ones who are most needed. Um, hmm. <laughs> uh, you're like, hmm, tell me more about that. <laughs> I would say as well, though, um, collaborations I've found is a really good way of doing things and uh, and then thinking out of the box so what you guys are doing here is 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 pretty ingenious in, in, in many ways like oh, just, thank you yeah, actually like, oh, let's uh, let's start a podcast um you know and get some attention that way um and then just having side projects so for me I realized that having my own projects was um really it helped legitimize you know um just in some ways in the same way a degree helps legitimize um, but um, having a project in in that area, it, it's hard for people to ignore that kind of thing uh, because you're actually just producing work. So that would, I guess, be my main piece of advice, which is, you know, go, I, I mean, and I was willing to be a dog's body. Like I would literally message people and just be like, can I please join your team, please? <laughs> like, um, I, you know, I'll happily make 
tea for people and coffee for people if if, if that's what you need me to do I, you know, I just want to get, get training basically um so I would say um you know in, come up with your project um or try and get onto somebody else's project um because it's it's you know it's a really good way of getting into things and often people you contact I mean you know in general the worst they can say is no although hopefully they're not yeah. cruel about yeah. it but yeah. um yeah it's most times people are delighted that you're interested in what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, you know, God, I'm just thinking of my first few digs. I had to send out a lot of emails before I got any kind of, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and sometimes they didn't go very well, you know, but it's kind of like, well, you know, you're, you're trying to find your people. Um, and it, it, it might take a minute to, to find the right, you know, mentor or the right, right um, team. But it's, you know, I think if, if you're really interested in the field, there's probably subject matter that you're really interested in doing. Um, and you're probably quite passionate, which kind of strikes me as well. Actually, there's probably a research project in that. <laughs> yeah, well... Um, Just, uh, by the way, there's loads of grant bodies as well that will fund, that will provide very small scale grants, but still small scale grants. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's just very hard for people to ignore people with a little bit of money who have done a bit of research. <laughs> it's just like, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, and so now we move on to our final two questions, which we ask everyone that we bring on the show, um, because it has just been so good. So this would be three years that we've been doing this. Um, and well over the years, thank you. And over thank the you. years, we have just really loved to see all of the differences and the through lines among everyone's answers. Hmm. Um, what these might be the hardest questions for you. So the first one is, what is your favorite thing about anthropology? I don't, it's so difficult to explain it. My favorite thing about anthropology is, I sound like a two-year-old, it's like an adventure. <laughs> yeah. It's you're, you're, you're going up and seeing what is us, but outside of what I am used to. And there is something mm. so exciting about that. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not going on the underground. It's, you know, it's something else. And that might be, you know, a different mode of transportation, whether it's like, the metro system in New York or whether it's like a camel or a yak or a god knows what but it's like it's just it's so it's like a holiday and an adventure it's like it's you're you're seeing something which you know uh, you're being forced to see something outside of your own um Mm. glasses I think that's that's kind of cool yeah yeah one last difficult one Mm -hmm. if you could be a fly on the wall for any moment in human history or prehistory or in the history of anthropology itself as a discipline, what would you choose? What do you want to see? I think it would be loitering with either Jesus, Muhammad, or Moses. Oh. Just loitering somewhere in the background. Because I, I just, I got questions. That's <laughs> entirely fair. I think it'd just be really fascinating. To be fair, I'd add Buddha to that. I'd get just kind of like, you know, I, I just, I, I would just love to see what was actually happening there. What are you guys doing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it would be quite funny because obviously with some of that, I'd just be a fly on the wall and there'd be nothing in front of me. I'd be like, hmm, I think they made him up. But, <laughs> um, but you know, I think it's it's still just absolutely fascinating to see, you know, what was lost in translation, so to speak, what, yeah. what were these individuals really like. Either that or kind of the, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the final episode of, uh, no, the first episode of Friends, guys. <laughs> oh, <laughs> There's a spread. I think there's something about those 90s sitcoms 
were juggernauts, you know, so Seinfeld, mm-hmm. um, Friends, Frasier, yeah. where you just think, did you understand at the beginning what you were saying? Um, like, I don't know, there's something kind of cool. Yeah? Yeah. Jesus and Muhammad and yeah, that one. Jesus, Muhammad, <laughs> Ross, Rachel, <laughs> Chandler. Great. Oh, hi, puppy. This is this has been really, really wonderful. Thank you so much for, oh, so much fun, for talking with us. Um, besides the book, The Handshake, A Gripping History, which everyone should go out and get. It's a, a slim, extensively readable volume. Um, it's really fun. It's Amber and I did both read it. It's, it's a lovely book. So, <laughs> um, so besides that, is there anything that you would like to plug? And would you like people to find you on the internet? And where can they do that? Please do find me on the internet. Yes, I'm at uh, Ella Alshamahi or Ella underscore Alshamahi. I used to be Little Ms. Fossil, MS Fossil, and it caused so much confusion that um, <laughs> my agents kind of ganged up on me and I was like, fine, <laughs> I'll use my name. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, I mean, I've got a few shows out there, so by all means, you know, Google them. But um, there's obviously been a hiatus, but really excited because obviously there's some really cool shows in the works. Now. Ooh, um, yeah. But um, yeah, I know it's like, oh, thank God, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Something to do. I know, I know. Because let me tell you, I, I can't write another book. I, I don't know how these people do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm done. I will go live back with my parents if, if, if it comes to it, um, rather than write another book. But no, um, yeah, just, uh, yeah, do feel free to follow me. Um, grab the book if you're, if you're so inclined, it's, it is, it's kind of history, anthropology, science. And I'd like to think a few jokes are in there as well. So, um, I chuckled. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really fun. And it's something that I don't know if many people have thought about history and biology and social sort of milieu of the handshake. So it's very, very exciting. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Um, And thank you, especially Ella for coming on the show. Um, This has been, so this has been wonderful. Um, It's been a delightful way to start my day. And we we will have everything that Ella mentioned, the shows, as as many links to those as Mm -hmm. we can. And Ella's uh, internet handles uh, up on our show notes along with the rest of the info. And so uh, we will be back in your ears again soon with new content, which you can find as always on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and anywhere else you like to listen. And you can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And if you want to listen to past episodes, all of those episodes, um, you could get yourself some hot pod merch. You could see our (laughs) syllabus for educators or so much more. You can find all of that if you head over to thedirtpod.com. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.